Hello, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions. I come to you today for this, episode 59, film number 59, Exorcism. A film made by Jess Franco in 1974 uh, with his style to try to cash in on the uh, devil possession craze of films that was popular at the time with the December 73 release of Exorcism to uh, Omen and all the other ones in between, you know, starting from Rosemary's Baby on. Um, so this is titled Exorcism, uh, France and Belgium, 1974. That is the country of origins in filming. Uh, the original theatrical title is Exorcism. France, with the E at the end. Uh, and then we have the Belgian-French theatrical title, Exorcisms and Black Masses. Exorcism is, is Messier Noas. Uh, then we have the Belgian-Dutch theatrical, it's just Exorcism is Zawate Misson. And um, a shorter version of it, the shorter in time, is a Demoniac. It's the clothed version, uh, less sexually explicit. Although this film didn't have any insert shots and such as I had led to believe, so it's uh, definitely a softcore film. No, no intercourse, no oral, nothing like that. So uh, let's see. And also, the Canadian theatrical title of it is "Chains and Black Leather," which is pretty unimaginative. Although he did have um, black boots and leather whips later, but still, chains and black leather sounds like a fucking magazine or something, something real basic. All right, uh, alternative titles, uh, Sex or Cisimus, French hardcore theatrical version, and uh, Le Vaisseau, the Italian theatrical, uh, The Depraved. Uh, let's see, unconfirmed titles, Sexual Experiences at the Chateau of Sensualists, Belgian, um, also Exorcism, Magic and Black Masses, okay. Uh, production company on this one is uh, Eurocene out of Paris, a uh, company he worked for many times. Uh, they always have the cheaper productions. Uh, Sinté, SA out of Brussels. Uh, theatrical distributor is Eurocene, once again, out of Paris. Timeline on this, the approximate shooting date is uh, around January, February of 1974. Uh, it was released rather quickly, um, comparatively speaking, for his films in Belgium first on July 25th of 74 about four months and or so a little bit later which is a pretty quick turnaround uh, French visa issued for the uh, sex racism version um, July 25th of 74 I'm sorry uh, December 18th of 74 uh, and then France uh, sex racism January 8th of 75 okay so it looks like they got the visa on December 18th 74 then it actually played France in January 8th of 75. Uh, then finally, Italy, uh, shortened version, March 5th of 76. Theatrical running time, France, 87 minutes. All right, cast on this, uh, Lina Romay returns once again as Anna. Uh, then you have Kathleen Leferre as Marina, the barmaid, uh, who's a newcomer, I believe, in the Franco universe at this time. Uh, then you have Lynn Montier as Rose. There's actually quite a few new faces in this film. Uh, Lynn Montier as Rose. Of course, uh, Jess Franco as Paul Vogel, alias Daniel Matisse, real name Paul Rosa. Uh, then you have Pierre Tellu returning as Raymond Franval, the publisher. And uh, you have Roger Germais returning again, uh, Melu, Tanner's first assistant. 
Monica Swim, of course, getting her start here, or returning after a few films, but this is an early film of hers. She plays uh, Mon- uh, Maria Th- Th- Theresa, the dominatrix. She does a great job in this film as that. Really funny with her scenes. Uh, France Nicholas is Miss Cartier, Black Mass High Priestess. Uh, Saint Marie plays David Cartier. Uh, Francois Gilliam plays Fred, Marina's boyfriend. Uh, Caroline Rivera, Gina, dancer in a nightclub, which is actually uh, Jess Franco's daughter. Um, I guess stepdaughter, because uh, it was his daughter. It was his wife's daughter and uh, raised her since she was a kid. So it's kind of funny. We talk about that in the review later, um, that uh, he has scenes with her naked and stuff, and it's just bizarre that that's his stepdaughter. But anyway, uh, we have um, Philippe Lebrun and Oliver Methote as Inspector Tanner, and uncredited uh, Ramon Ardid as a man watching Gina dancing uh, hotel receptionist. Very small role. Uh, let's see. Okay. Um, then, of course, you have Bigotini as the Count's Man Service. Very small role for him. It's always fun to see his face. Uh, Claude Cendron is the Count. Claude Bisson as Yul Sanders. Uh, Gaston Meneur as the pathologist. Pierre Caston as Tanner's second assistant. And uh, for some, I guess, hardcore sequences, which I didn't see that. Um, Marie Christine Chavel, Woman Chained Up in the Attic, Lena Romay, Pierre Tellu, and David Atta. Credits on this uh, Jess Franco course director a screenplay by david kuhn which of course k-h-u-n-e is just franco one of his many aliases so screenplay by david kuhn and henry brow de bostier director of photography etienne rosenfeld supervising editor pierre quarat editors andre Binchineau, jacques nicolette original music by andre Binichou. uh executive theater producer daniel lassure production manager marcus lassure uh, unit manager, Mi- Miguel Brion. First assistant director, F. Somet. Second assistant director, Pierre Caston. Mm, C-N-K. All right. So um, we'll kind of go over some. He There's actually, of course, we always um, take all the detail from Stephen Thor's magnificent book, Murderous Passions. Uh, this one is volume one, which deals with this film. Uh, he says, basically... Um, I'm not going to go over all of it, but production notes. The dark and dirty portrait of a Parisian psychopath is a pivotal work in Jess Franco's career. It stands out for his depiction of a very believable monster, all the more unnerving as the actor playing the role is Jess Franco himself. During the production with any... Dating the production, dating the production with any precision is vexingly difficult. During his commentary for the 2001 DVD released by Synops, Franco claimed we made exorcism in Paris and had a very nice time with the autumn weather and fantastic light. He also said that he cast Lynn Montel after admiring her in Celestine, an all-around maid, which was shot in spring 74. Taken together, the two comments suggest autumn 74 as the shooting period. However, the official Belgian release date, as recently confirmed for me by the Brussels Cinemark, was July 25th of 74. So the film must have been shot at least six months earlier. Furthermore, it had to have been finished by the time Franco left Paris for Portugal in April 74, because he spent the next four months in Lisbon, Sintra, Casquias, and Estrel, making Le Chateaulis, Le Jeanseux, and Le Grand Emeraduces. Uh, Monica Swim, who acted in Exorcism and all three of the Portuguese short f- shot films, told me, 
I'm not sure, but I believe that exorcism was before Portugal. We were in Portugal just a month after the revolution, uh, which would be April 25th. Also puzzling is the presence in exorcism of a shot depicting Ramon Ardid working as a hotel concierge. It's an almost exact duplicate of a shot in Lorne of the Exorcist, which was shot in April 74. The location is the same. The camera angle is virtually identical, and Ardid is wearing the same clothes. This leads one to suspect that the two films were under construction or at around the same time. Bearing in mind Female Vampire, which was pieced together from three separate shoots spread across several months, it's likely that Exorcism II was a fragmented production. It seems prudent then to position it in early 1974. All right, review. Uh, Exorcism begins with an eight-and-a-half-minute torture sequence in which a nude woman, Lynn Montel, subjects a bound female victim, a Miss Lena Romay, to a black magic ritual involving flagellation, animal sacrifice, the smearing of blood on naked flesh, and a fatal stabbing, except that the entire spectacle is revealed to be a sadoerotic performance piece staged in a remote French chateau for an invited audience of jaded sophisticates. This essentially replays with greater explicitness the opening scenes of Franco's 1968 classic Succubus and contrives to be morbid, obsessive, and deeply strange, the mood hovering somewhere between bated breath suspense and drug-enhanced sexual fantasy in which the participants move as if underwater. Franco's handheld camera, leaning into the action and lapping up Romay's fear and disgust, communicates a sense of participating in a sick, arcane rite. You can almost smell the sweat, the animal blood, the stifling incense. In contrast, the music is somber and achingly beautiful, mingling church organs, cello, and Spanish guitar. This discordant combination of sacred and profane provides the defining harmonic template of the film, mirroring the dissident mind of the protagonist, Paul Vogel, a pious believer in God, disgusted by sins of the flesh, who writes trashy sex stories for seedy magazines and fondles the crotches of women before murdering them for their licentious ways. Like Roman Polanski in The Tenet, another morbid Parisian tale in which the director doubles as a disturbed protagonist, Franco unflinchingly reveals the most disturbing and pathetic aspects of his lead character, doing so without restraint or self-aggrelatistment. There's no eco-protection here. Franco really doesn't care how repellent a character he portrays. His hair is so lank and greasy you doubt it's been washed for months. Uh, and that's actually true. When I was watching it with Joe, I kept remarking um, with Eric is that his hair is so greasy in this film. Because we always laugh about how Soldado Miranda's hair looks so healthy and so shiny and pretty. And and Franco's in this film is just so greasy. It just looks like it, you just see the grease shine in it. Uh, as if bad grooming were not enough, it transpires that Vogel is a defrocked priest who's escaped from an asylum currently wanted by the German police for offenses against minors. Other characters make disparaging remarks about him, comments that ring sharp with double-edged meaning. After all, Franco is a purveyor of sadomasochistic melodrama, just like Vogel. He really is a weirdie, says Vogel's trending kidnapper, Tide publisher Ramon Fraval. He scares the pants off me, agrees Anna, Raymond's secretary. And here he kind of goes over the um, comparison with Franco as a uh, director of sleazy films and the uh, publisher of the magazine and how he, he's kind of sees as his person 
played through that character, um, transgression type stuff. Um, oh, here we go. Okay. It says, Franco says that he only stepped in for Vogel after failing to secure Vincent Price for the role. Wow. I, yeah, I don't think Vincent Price would ever do a film like this. God damn. That's funny. Um, leaving aside the bizarre mental image of Price in this project, the remark shows that Franco regarded exorcism as a major undertaking requiring a committed central performance. His assertion that he himself was the best actor available to play the role underlines that he regarded the film as significant and not to be entrusted to just anyone. Among Franco's repertory of male actors, only Howard Vernon might have played the character well. Yeah, actually, I'd see Howard Vernon playing in a different way. And I, I think it probably would have been a lot better film, in my opinion. Because um, I'm really not a fan of this film. Um, perhaps cross between his resentful doctor and sinner and his nihilistic private eye and Les Abernalis. Yeah, that's what I think. Uh, with that in mind, we have to ask, why a scumbag like Vogel matters so much to Franco that he should take on the part himself? Is the film some kind of exorcism of Franco's Christian childhood? Does he understand and in some way carry within him? The religious disease of Vogel, who sees women as servants of the devil designed to pollute men by playing the character and then twisting the knife, does Franco aim to weaken the hold such though thoughts might once have had on his imagination? In other words, is the titular exorcism as much personal as fictional? Don't be silly, he's perfectly harmless. It's nothing but a literary pose, so says Raymond to Anna. The comment sees Franco poking fun at himself, but also puts one in mind of Eugenie, 1970, in which the murderous Raddick described the writer Attila Tanner, played by Franco, as a harmless maniac, only for Raddick's partner in crime, Eugenie, to respond, He's a highly refined intelligence. He's a highly refined intelligence, much like us. He understands us. Tanner, let's recall, wanted to study the... Radix, a pair of incestuous sadists on a killing spree, without turning them in. In both films, Franco seems to be admitting something of his own character, and Eugenie his immoral fascination with murder, and exorcism his upbringing in a heavily Catholic country, and its effect on his sexual identity. Uh, let's see. Uh, they kind of go over Vogel's character, um, about how they see the similarities and parallels with Franco and Vogel. I'm going to wrap this part up with this. So, once you unpack exorcism, no one emerges unstained. However, it has to be said that this is an often opaque, shambolic film that requires more than one viewing to unravel the plot and catch a plethora of fleeting verbal asides. Working out who's who is sometimes unnecessarily difficult with characters wandering by other wandering by either unnamed or mentioned so casually that you need the dedication of a detective working late on a case to catch the information. That said, it really does deliver on a dark, twisted, sadosexual horror story, leaving some clammy and uncomfortable thoughts lingering in one's head afterwards. No matter how much we despise Vogel and his absurd religious hang-ups, there's no denying that his vile actions are the core of the film's appeal. In Exorcism, Franco not only looks into his own murky soul, not only does he tease us about the extent of his own personal sickness, but demands that we take an honest look at our own investment of the fantasies he liberates for our gaze. In its grim, ritualized way, Exorcism tries to smear the viewer with blood, rather as Lynn Montelli does to Lena Romay at the beginning. We may think we watch a film like this because we're interested in the nature of evil, but when it comes to evil, Franco would argue rather as Hannibal Lecter does to the cop who caught him in Manhunter. You want the scent? Smell yourself. All right. Uh, let's see what we got going here.
here, okay. Uh, Franco on screen. Franco gives an astonishingly creepy and intense performance with maybe a touch of the Art Krager and a whiff of Peter Lorre. The difference is that Vogel has no trappings of respectability to bolster his illusions of ground purpose. To look at him on the street, you think he was a destitute, an idea that's developed further in Exorcism's 1979 redo, The Sadist of Notre Dame. On the commentary track for the Snaps DVD, Franco reveals that starring in the film meant he sometimes had to delegate camera work to someone else. In this case, Ramon Ardit, and discusses that the long, rather dull orgy scene drags on because the lasseurs insisted on it. Frank was searched that he himself had something like 85% final cut. Cast and crew. Uh, Lynn Montelli, who Franco would go on to cast in Celestine and All Around Made, made no further films for him, apparently because she moved to London, where she worked for many years at the famous Raymond Review Bar. To play Raymond, Franco cast Belgian actor Pierre Tellou, who had already appeared for him a couple of minor roles, Tenor vs. Emmanuel, Kiss Me Killer. Tellou was married at the time to France Nicholas, who plays the Countess. Music. Um, Andre Benichaud's score is an inspired combination of melancholia and unease. The jewel in the crown is the main theme for church organ and Spanish guitar. It's an elegant conjuration, the liturgical majesty of which rubs provocatively against the grain of Franco's grubbier imagery. Also of note is a strange and unsettling electric guitar piece, combining heavily echoed strumming with overlaid wah-wahs, which is used to good effect. Uh, it also features prominently in the also, yeah, there's some uh, like two good jazz tunes too, like a Chuck Mangione type sound uh, with a nice little trumpet, and uh, yeah, there's two two trumpet tunes as well. They don't mention here uh, locations. Unusually for a Franco film, Exorcism is landlocked. However, the river sign stands in for the ocean, and we never stray far from its banks. The location footage begins with a shot from the Point Louis Fabri at the Croix de Hotel de Ville. Zooming in to the clock tower of the saint Gervais de saint Prost church, followed by a cut to a shot of the adjacent bridge, the Pointe-Marie. Uh, Anna's cafe meeting with Rose is on the Croix de Javon, directly by the Pont de Chant. The cafe, currently called the Le Mistral, is still there. Rose and Anne walk back to their apartment, spied upon by Vogel, who looks at the Il Saint-Louis side of the Pointe-Louis-Philippe. The apartment is situated just a stone's throw away at the 45 Croix de Bourbon. The subterranean view vault of the Count at the bar where Vogel meets one of his victims is the Caveau de Oblatois, a basement jazz club in the Latin Quarter that was once a genuine 12th century Parisian dungeon. Um, that's very cool. It's actually a really cool bar in the film. The, base, the basement is accessed via winding stairs, which is a spiral staircase in the shot film, uh, leading to a grotto-like cavern decorated with old chains. One can be discerned descriptions of the walls left by prisoners who were tortured there. Wow. The apartment where Raymond lives and the church at Vogel seems to own are probably the same building, judging by the style of the window frames and the similar framed prints on the wall. It's a slightly run-down old chateau on the outskirts of Paris. Um, and judging by Pierre Chevelle's Home de Jean, a European porn production uh, shot concurrently with Exorcism with many of the same cast members. The place is probably some kind of a hotel. The lobby of the hotel, where Vogel goes to spy on Anna and Rose, is the same one seen during Guy de Lamour's flashback scenes in Lorna, The Exorcist. Ramon Ardid is a receptionist in both films, and he's wearing the same clothes, suggesting that shots were grabbed for both films at the same time. Connections. The <clears throat> Those common Franco names, Melou and Tanner, make a comeback, although this time allotted to the cops investigating the case. Although police scenes are generally tiresome in horror films, the chippy relationship between 
Olivia Mathot's grumbling Inspector Tanner, the intellectual Malou, is quite amusing. Um, Ramon Fravel takes his surname from the short story Eugénie de Franval by the Marquis de Sade, first published in the collection Les Crimes de l'Amour, Nouvelles, Herriques, et Tragiques, uh, the versions. Okay. It's quite a bit here. All right, Exorcism is, no, is yet another fragmented text, having gone through several changes after initial completion. For a start, there's a clothed export version with, with simultaneously... Okay, for a start, a clothed export version was simultaneously with the more explicit nude version in anticipation of likely censorship. The nude version, Franco's preferred cut, only ever played theatrically in Belgium where it opened in July as Exorcism and Black Masses. Meanwhile, the clothed version, retitled Demoniac, was deemed by Eurocene to be lacking in bite, and so inserts were added to make the stabbings more graphic. Franco states that they were shot by porn director Claude Cedron some six or seven months after the original was completed. With the result was given an X, Franco found himself in a certain situation. He had not wanted the graphic violence and sexual elements, such as the protected orgy, had been fostered upon him by producer Marcus Lassure. To make matters worse, now the film had been slapped with an X rating. Marcus Lassure argued that the film was destined to play sex cinemas and didn't have enough sex to complete with the other hardcore titles on the circuit. Franco therefore agreed to shoot new hardcore inserts himself, and the results were, say, at least startling. Obsession lists the ex-certificate version as sex racism, while French official sources refer to it as sex racism maze. Of the two versions released in French video, one bears neither of these on-screen titles, while the other opts for sex racism. Um... Although structurally it's a terrible muddle, sex racism is nevertheless a significant Franco work in its own right, leading us into territory quite beyond the pale for any director with a career outside of pornography. Basically, and not to put too fine a point on it, Franco inserts himself into the hardcore action. The first additional material appears after Vogel, overhears Ramon and Anna joking that they will stage a real black mask. Instead of cutting to Anna's cafe, rendezvous with Rose, the camera ascends a wooden staircase to a secret room in the killer's house. Uh, inside a cramped, starkly lit egg chamber, we see a new dark-haired woman chained to the ceiling. What happens next is possibly the last word on the subject between director and actress. We see Franco himself in shots at Brooknell argument about stands and her stand doubles, bouncing on the woman and laughing at her pussy, entering her sex with his tongue and rubbing his penis against her vagina. Okay, so yeah, the version I seen didn't have that in there. It cut before that, so that's interesting, because I thought I was seeing the unversion, Okay. Uh, many filmmakers, respectable or otherwise, have used the cinema as a means to pursue women. However, no one with a career outside of pure pornography has ever grappled with the lustful basis of film so directly, which he goes to later in the film Downtown, but uh, this is before that. Um, it's especially fitting that this metaphorically secret chamber in Franco's cinema, rarely seen before the days of the internet, and still unavailable on DVD or Blu-ray, okay, that's why, should be hidden away on another floor of the killer's house to be reached by a concealed stairway underexplored in the mainstream version. It's fitting because Franco's entire cinema could be seen as architectural. It's like a sprawling mansion with elegant patio hallways here, a dilapidated jerry-built wing there. It has many floors, numerous cellars and attics, and a Byzantine maze of obscure rooms rarely visited. It even has the parts that are incomplete, abandoned, or unfinished. If one thinks about Franco's work in this way, then the last shot of the original exorcism, puzzling, unmotivated zoom into an upstairs window, resonates all the more. Um, 
Sexorcism then adds another six minutes of tedious hardcore footage, not featuring Jess Franco to the already tiresome exorcism orgy scene, and follows it with an extra five minutes of hardcore action involving Pierre Tellu and Lena Romay, the later of which she was wearing a long black wig reaching down to her waist. Um, another example of how much further Franco was willing to go crops up when he adds hardcore penetration shots to the sequence in which Vogel slash Rochelle menaces Gina, played by Carolyn Rivera, Franco's stepdaughter, giving the impression that he has raped the girl before murdering her. Shocking, I should point out, that in this instance, Franco is not the actor in the inserts. The male buttocks we see are firm, the thighs young and fit, nor is it Riveria, the actress in the inserts. Whoever else Franco's willing to do on camera, he draws a line up making out with his stepdaughter. Sexorcism collapses into coherence with a scene inserted after Vogel's tormenting Havana, features an erect male fingering a woman's vagina, and bears no similarity in any ways to the surrounding footage. Wrong lighting, wrong skin texture, wrong hair color, wrong everything. Um, so yeah, it's a bunch, bunch of intro shots that really just don't fucking have no meaning and just pat it out. The question of Vogel's religious background is answered in Franco's Exorcism Redo, The Sadist of Notre Dame, 1979, five years after this. But in Exorcism and Sexorcisms, it's left hanging. A tease I'm afraid I must mimic, as I'll be discussing The Sadist of Notre Dame in Volume 2 of this book, unless previous refit jobs such as Le Mire Obscure or Le Crosses incorporates enough new material and exhibits enough thought and care to be considered a standalone title, and justifies Franco's frail assertion that is the ultimate rendition of the project he began in 1974. Alrighty, well that's going to wrap up this uh, intro part of um, Exorcism. Um, so yeah, see see what you think if you have it or see it. Um, I know there's this new Kino Lorber station on like uh, Fire Stick, I think, and online for sure, maybe like Roku and that. Um, check it out because... There's like seven or eight Franco films on there, and Sexorcism might be on there, so like you can watch it for free, um, digitally and all that stuff. So, be kind of cool. Check it out. Um, I can't really recommend it, but you know, it's a film. You, you might like it. So, uh, but if you like it, you definitely would like the Franco Observer podcast, and if you, that's why you're listening. So, uh, if you can, please download our show and subscribe to it. Uh, subscribing and uh, telling your friends, getting the word out. Other Franco fans, let them know that, uh, yeah, there's a Franco show it's every week, every Wednesday morning, you know. We drop the new episode and all that stuff. And uh, also, too, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always get a hold of us at Yahoo. Our email address is uh, FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com. And also, you could get a hold of us on Facebook, the Franco Observer Podcast. And on Instagram, we have a page, uh, Franco Observer Podcast. So go ahead and add us there. And like I said, please subscribe. And you can find us on all your favorite listening platforms, tell all your friends, all that good stuff. Because sometimes I forget to add those little ads in. Also, too, by the time this drops, um, or actually might be before this drops, I guested on a show called Movie Loaf, hosted by Michael Keane. And uh, I believe it's going to be on YouTube. And I will uh, let the f- friends and fans of this show, Frank Observer Podcast, uh, give you the link. That's another reason why to add us on Facebook and Instagram. I'll put all the information there and uh, let you guys know about it. And also, true too, I'll try to add it on the um, on the uh, episode description when it when it drops too. But uh, yeah, it should drop about probably around the end of October, somewhere around there, which should be about the time this episode drops. So, 
Alrighty, guys, uh, hang on tight. Listen for the bumper music after this, and then you'll hear Eric and I talk for about half an hour about the film we watched, Exorcism. The good, the bad, and the ugly. But anything Lena's in, you gotta watch, so. Alright, adios. Hey, buddies, welcome once again to the Frank Observer Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking group, and right now we are in post-production on Lady Hyde and Emmanuel in Sin City, due out, uh, I would say, summer of 2022, which uh, sounds like a long ways away, but it's really not, probably about six to eight months, somewhere around there. Uh, so today for episode 59, we watched the film Exorcism and in the we, I'm not talking about the royal we, I'm talking about myself and, uh, my friend and frequent, uh, co-reviewer who took a few wees during this film, Mr. Eric Whitwell. <laughs> What's up, man? Yeah. So yeah, I don't know if you had a weak bladder or if it was Lena chained up that made you walk to the bathroom a few times during the film. Oh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I've been drinking a lot of, uh. Diet Pepsi and uh, uh, water. I got you. Yeah, so. it's a urination. Yeah, so <laughs> so that had nothing to do with Lena. Okay, no, no, no. but uh, yeah, that's in different ways. So uh, <laughs> that'll be later. So yeah, so for this we watched uh, Exorcism is the version that we watched. Although it said it was like the erotic version, but you know there wasn't no insert shots like I had kind of read about and stuff, and didn't really seem like uh, anything extra. There wasn't no like deep sh- close-up shots or any insertion insertion shots or nothing like that yeah. that i saw unless i saw something maybe just the orgy scene that went on too long that was maybe the difference i have no idea that's the only thing i could think of there's yeah. nothing there was nothing like triple x but it was just no. uh i think it was just like the extended orgy scene yeah and just and then just her being naked longer or maybe yeah scenes with the stuff and maybe monica swim when they threw her on the bed you know oh yeah that's true shot. that's true some of that shot that's true some of that extra stuff yeah. but yeah it's but yeah cause it's like a tw- like a 20 minute difference or something but I'm kind of curious what that 20 minutes would be. So, um, all right. right. Well, we fast forwarded. Yeah, I know. <laughs> God, that fucking orgy scene went on like way too long. Actually, which is good. This is a really fucking short synopsis. So, all right. I'm going to give you the synopsis and then uh, ask Eric what he thought of the film and then go through the famous uh, Franco list and uh, give you my thoughts of the film and all that good stuff. All right. Synopsis. Two women, Rose and Anna, take part in a sadomasochistic black magic rite at the chateau of a decadent count for an audience of rich sophisticates. The rite climaxes with Rose stabbing Anna, at which point the two of them take a bow, revealing that the satanic sacrifice was simply an illusion. Anna's day job is as secretary to a publisher of erotica, Raymond Franval. Paula Vogel, a contributor to Frontval's magazine, The Dagger and the Garter, whom Anna finds creepy and disturbing, comes to the office with a new story for publication. Unbeknownst to either of them, Vogel is more than just a writer of erotic horror stories. He's a genuine lunatic, murdering women whom he regards as transgressing God's holy laws. Eavesdropping, he hears Anna and Raymond discussing the next black mass at the Count's Chateau. Believing that they are planning a real satanic rite, he resolves to punish the devils responsible. So, uh, Eric Whitwell, what do you think of 
exorcism. Uh, <laughs> I didn't, yeah. Um, there was a, it had some funny parts. Um, yeah, unintentionally funny. Unintentionally, yeah, yeah, unintentionally funny. Um, it's cool to see, uh, where was it filmed in? Like, uh, uh, let's see. Let me Germany or? Well, I think it's, um, France. You know, I have no idea. I'm not going to play like I know. Uh, let's see here. Uh, did, uh but anyway, yeah. It's just cool to see, like, the streets of that time, see how it looks. It says, um, in St. Gervais de Proche Church, uh, Point Marte, um, yeah, I think France, uh, okay. Paris. Okay, it's slightly run down on Chateau on the outskirts of Paris. Okay, yeah. yeah. So it's cool to see what the streets of Paris look like during that time period. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. There's beautiful girls in it, but... It's yeah. That's about. It. I didn't really. It wasn't. Really, I, I'm not a big fan of it. Yeah, no, same here. Um, before I go over the list and all that stuff, some of the funny things, and this is really weird. Um, there's scenes where he, uh, one of the prostitutes that Franco kidnaps, is uh, in real life at the time his stepdaughter. <laughs> and uh, so it's funny they made the mention in the book about Stephen Thor makes a mention. It says, take that Woody Allen. And it's pretty funny because that's basically his stepdaughter at the time. And she's, I would say in her maybe mid to late twenties. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say fair, yeah, mid twenties. You know? Yeah. And yeah, and she's naked in this and he touches her breasts a little bit. And that's about it. But she's naked in front of him on the Well, he bed, kisses and, her too. Like he gets yeah, on kisses top of her, her, kisses her. Yeah. And touches her breasts. Up. But he's fully clothed and stuff. Yeah. You know? But he's, yeah, he's, very little bit with her. He doesn't go as full as I was wondering, you know. But yeah, yeah. But, but it's still funny to have your stepdaughter naked and chained up, yeah. and, you know, torching her and f- trying to kiss her. And stuff. Well, I, I wonder what age did she become a stepdaughter? Like, okay, so like if she became a, t- a stepdaughter at the age of 22, right? Yeah. So she's been in his life for a few years. He's only known her as a young adult. You know what well, I mean? That could, I yeah. mean, I'm not, I'm not, hey, I am not defending it. Please, everyone, I'm not defending it. I'm just saying, like, he could but, see her as a beautiful woman. But knowing the history, and so I think probably when she was probably, like, 8 or 10. See, now, that's like, yeah, where it's kind yeah, of, that's yeah, where yeah. I think it's like a little. Yeah. Like, if you've, you've kind of, like, watched uh, her and, grow. And what you can't see is Eric is giving me a high five, but I'm rejecting it, so. Well, I don't understand why you would. <laughs> that, that's my clean hand. Yeah, Eric's like, yeah, bro, yeah, bro. Like, no, dude, no, no, I don't no. believe in that. That's simply wrong. <laughs> Well, it also it's kind of funny too. Is like later in the movie, they're like when the police are talking, they describe him as, "Oh, and he's wanted in Germany for uh, yeah, bull uh, station with a minor, or something. yeah, something like yeah, that, something yeah. with a minor, like sexual conduct with a minor." Yeah. It's like, "Oh, as a pedophile, oh, Amongst his stepdaughter, stuff, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. a uh, defrocked ex priest that was a writer and, and all that stuff." So yeah, yeah, it, it's not film. It's basically like in the synopsis says about a man who's a writer and ex priest who believes that these people are going on with the business and they're and it's his job to kill them and to take the evil out of them and in 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 jesus name god's name to cleanse the world of of, of these of this evil and he believes this is evil and uh, yeah so franco shot this uh and it was released in 75 which is uh well actually he shot this but it was released in 75 which was at the height of the omen and uh, rosemary's baby actually not rosemary's baby um the Exorcist and all that. Uh, yeah, this was shot in seventy four. Um, let's see here, uh, January February seventy four, and it came out in uh, Italy. Uh, well, actually, let's see, Belgium played July seventy four. French visa issued uh, December seventy four. France January seventy five. Italy March seventy six. Uh, but yeah, so that was right during the craze of all that. So 
you could tell he made this as a possession devil possession movie to try to cash in on what was going on with that and along with his own type of uh okay we have naked lena and what else can we do okay uh you see a lot of his trappings in this you see this uh, actually let me go over the list because that we can go further yeah on, da, da, on, da, on da, what those da. keys key tones are the key the key the key uh key moments touchstones all right so a body of water doesn't really figure in too much in this. You see the uh, like a lake, I guess, outside river. of the, I guess the river that, lake. Yeah, yeah, the river, a uh, river outside of this little place, and then uh, that's about it for the body of water. Uh, you, you do see a boat. Eric caught a boat, uh, not a sailboat, just a, a boat hauling people under a bridge. Just one. Uh, no palm trees in this. Uh, no jungle sound effects. But Franco has his own bird sound effects whenever he walks into a, ho- a place like a home or a play- hotel or something he has a weird bird kind of a flute yeah. sound Eric had mentioned it, so he's used it in the past in, in, a, in another film or two yeah what the fuck yeah it's only for him it only comes out it's like wait there is a you can totally hear it it's dubbed over uh, number six chained up person yes that's oh, yeah. probably the most dominant feature on this besides number seven dance scenes on stage stripping that's the two and the six and seven go hand in hand because their performances always involve somebody being chained up and then uh you know, and his stepdaughter naked. was dancing up on a stage that's true and that was, so she was dancing her, on yeah. stage and that was in eight club scenes dancing she's yeah. dancing in the bar as yeah a, yeah kind of like a, it was a go-go stage dance or whatever uh she nine. stripped right after exactly <laughs> strip for her for step daddy, daddy. exactly <laughs> Sounds like one of those videos on uh, you porn or whatever. Oh, gosh. Like hamster, you know. This is not my daughter. <laughs> exactly. Not my. You know, so they can get away with it. Oh, God. Let's see. Uh, okay. Uh, number she's nine. She's pretty hot, though. I'm not going to lie. Like, she's, oh, yeah. She's, no. she's, she's pretty hot. Uh, very, very beautiful woman. Uh, smooth body, great breasts, uh, very yeah. even tan all the way through. Yeah. Really, really hot. Yeah. And, you know, you got something like that that's available to you. And I guess the scruples beside, and he, I guess professional manner or whatever yeah. she's going to do for other directors if she's an actor at the time and, and and she is in a few of his films and she has been naked before in a few of his films that was like wait that's his stepdaughter but and this is this one's definitely a step up for her of of being in action and stuff and she shows up later during the um uh urban c dietrich films uh she comes in a few food films in that one at least she's in slaves and in uh one of the prison films but uh, okay, so then we have uh, jazz music. Yeah, it starts off with some of the more organ and, and um, uh, chamber music and that, but then he turns into like this Chuck Mangione song later that I was digging and, and another jazz tune. There's about two or three jazz tunes on this, along with some chamber and classical sounding organ music and that. Yeah. Uh, number 10, excessive zooms. Yeah. Quite a few, but not excessive. But there was more out of focus shots. Number eleven, I think, more than the zooms. Yeah, quite a few out of focus shots. Oh, yeah. So I was laughing, catching quite a few. And unfortunately, we weren't able to catch number fourteen, a magic tongue. Magic tongue was definitely needed in this film. Um, I oh. always enjoy Lena enjoying herself more than being tortured. That's probably another reason why I didn't really dig this film as much, yeah. is because Lena to me is like joyful and freedom. And in this yeah. one, it's like he's stifling Lena. He's censoring her, and he's like stopping her from being free and being herself of sticking her tongue out and sticking her tongue <laughs> stick her tongue out and in other places but uh but you, you, know. you skipped over uh 12 though uh mirror shots thank you uh yeah uh 
Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, I skipped over two. Yeah, so uh, mirror yeah. shots uh, number twelve. Uh, there's quite a few mirror shots in yeah. this. Nothing too fancy. Uh, you see a lot of basic ones. There's a couple. Actually, when she's chained up naked in front of the mirror, that's kind of cool. Um, there's a few that are decent in this. But there's a lot that are just there to be there. Yeah. Uh, number thirteen, mind control theme. I would say he's under a control of you know maybe religion type thing of like he's he is possessed of all the ones that's possessed he's the one that's possessed and he thinks other people are possessed yeah he's possessed of what he feels is what he has to do and as he's speaking somebody speaking through him he's the lord's sword yeah he is he talked about that the magic sword of of, of justice and all that so yeah, so I would say the mind control thing would be on him um, in more of a metaphorical sense. And this one is definitely more that way because that's all he was yeah, all the way to the very end, you know. Uh, okay, and a magic tongue, of course. Uh, number 15, red light. Yes, not a lot, but there's uh, one I caught in the police station over in the corner of the scene. There's a red light that flashed a few times and then in one or two other scenes. Uh, 16, uh, half is yes. Sheepskin rug, yes. Yes. From Monica Swim's bed. And then masturbation with the sea item. No, I don't think there's really any masturbation. Not really masturbation in this. No, no. no. Well, there's a couple of scenes where like the guy was trying to get to the girl, and it seemed like she was maybe kind of oh, yeah. holding the hand off a little bit. But that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, during one of the uh, dance scenes on stage. Yeah, there's a scene where this older guy. Like, actually, it's funny because everybody in the audience is an older man and a younger woman. Yeah. Imagine that a younger man and an older woman on screen on a on a, on a film. Wow, we haven't never seen that before. But yeah, so everybody's like. Say the guys are in the, maybe their forties and fifties, and the girls are in their like twenties or thirties. And uh, yeah, and the one girl's like kissing, and he tell the guy kind of directing the girl. And the first thing is like one guy's hand goes right down her blouse, or it's grabbing her boob, and then the other guy's like sticking his hand right up her skirt, and the girl's like trying to push his hand away a little bit, <laughs> but knowing they're being filmed and like they're in a thing, but trying to be playful with. But still, you can tell she's like, dude, just relax, man. Just <laughs> fucking don't go there right away, and yeah. you just fucking slow down, dude. You know. <laughs> And that's very truthful with men and women, especially as a director. Women always take an action slower, and a man's always quick to go. And I'm the same way. I, I do that with uh, when I watch my own wrestling. I do things very quick, and I need to slow down, slow down. And that's uh, always a theme of his thing. No, it's probably one him touching her woo-woo. Yeah. <laughs> She's probably like, no, nah, dude, come on, man. Like, yeah. I auditioned for this part, not <laughs> yeah. not for you. <laughs> yeah, she also didn't want her uh, t- uh, touching her pussy as well. Yeah. Um, Number 17, Mad Scientist, I'd say no. No. Uh, 18, Fish Tank Shots, no. no. 19, Talking Parrots or Animals of Any Kind, no. I wish. Fortunately, no. There's a, Bring the, them back, Franco, come uh, on. That's coming up. Uh, 20, End Credits, yes or no, yes. Yes. Very abrupt at the end, which we'll talk about after this. <laughs> Actually, let's talk about that now. So, yeah, so yeah. basically, uh, not to be a spoiler on the film, but basically in a nutshell, um, they track Franco's character down to where the... Right, he had also oh, rewind a little bit. The the uh, publisher and the blonde woman, one of the mains, had set up another orgy to draw out Franco's character. Even though they just talked to him in the office, and they could have arrested him there. Yeah, they draw him. They set up another orgy to try to trap him. To, black mass. Yeah, another black mass to try <laughs> to come in and uh, kill one of them at base, or, or attempt to, so they can catch him. But unfortunately. He's successful and kills somebody at the Black Mass and takes off, and the cops show up just in the nick of time, of course. And the man has to grab his fur jacket and follow them out and uh, jump in the car. And uh, they catch Franco and Lena, and uh, cops pull guns, uh, shoot Franco, 
and Lena is saved in the car along with the publisher with the fur jacket and the cops chuckle about how the younger cop knows a thing or two now about police. Maybe the older cop should listen to him and the older cop sheepishly agrees and nods his head and they have a good laugh getting the car and they drive off signaling the end yes meanwhile leaving uh, franco's dead shot body with no police report uh lena half dead chained up naked in the car and the publisher with his fur jacket standing there with no cell phones and wondering what to do next yeah at franco's house like this was yeah. his house where- right where he dragged the naked Lena from her, yeah. her apartment And the cops building. don't stay to file a report. They just drive away yeah. and kind of laugh about it. We got him. All right, yeah. let's go. Yeah. Another, <laughs> which leads to 23 inept cops. Yes. <laughs> that is the inept cops that, even though the young guy was right and they got the bad guy, they just leave it totally open. Well, I, I totally, like, was giving the cops some credit. I'm like, wow, they're actually, like, they're figuring out who it is. Like, yeah. the cop actually went into Franco's apartment. But meanwhile, he sneaks into the apartment looking for the guy, but he looks out the window the whole time. He's sneaking into the guy's place, leaving his back and head and everything exposed to anybody sneaking up behind him from either left, right, or anywhere. And, yeah, and just Franco's ninja self so yeah. somehow sneaks up behind this cop. Well, he is dressed all in black. Well, okay, smooth, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. And even though clothes the, do make the man, even though the grease, the grease in his hair does reflect the light, so that's not really the, <laughs> the cop the is best. just like, oh, I'm breaking to this house, and I'm going to be unaware of anything that's going on around me. Yeah. I'm just going to look out the window and yeah. see what he saw. Exactly. Maybe, maybe he's hanging outside the window. Oh, I just, I just <laughs> trying to think what I was watching. Right at the point where I was giving the cops some credit, I'm like, oh no, never mind. Take yeah. that back. Take that back. Uh, jumped over a handwritten sign. Yes, there's a handwritten yeah. sign in front of like the black mass. I think it was, or one of the earlier ones. There's a scene written up about yeah. something going to somewhere. Caught that a spiral staircase shot. Yeah, there's actually quite uh, about two or three in this film, at least two. And finally, uh, belly chains. Yes, yeah. there's uh, at least one or two belly chains. Fashion belly chains and actual chains around belly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> quite a few unintentional belly chains, cool belly belts and stuff. Yeah. Um, but no, it's cool with this. He recreates some of his... Franco he, Franco always has like bizarre, uh, kind of stripping, artistic, weird situations on stage. And uh, he does it with Vampiros Lesbos, with the dancing with the mannequin and the real life and statue. And then does it with uh, Succubus and does uh, for, on and on and on with Nightmares Come at Night with the weird slow stripping. And, and uh, does always... Di- bizarre stripping on stage and this one he recreates the fake killing kind of uh grand guggenol paris type stage show so um yeah it's interesting that's like you see that like two or three times in the film that's a big part of this film is kind of recreating those scenes along with him kind of always hanging out somewhere watching peeping through windows peeping around corners and always having access to any building he wants to get into in, uh, the uh, the apartment buildings these people live in, the uh, backstage at these cathedrals, these different uh, buildings of all the kind. He always has access to anywhere he can get in, which is bizarre. But yeah, I don't know how that works. But yeah, he's always just standing off to the side watching. Like if you yeah. just edit all the scenes of him just standing to the side watching, I think yeah. you probably have about five minutes of footage. Oh, at least I'd say yeah. probably even closer <laughs> to twelve minutes. It'd be really interesting. Yeah, to watch. the hallway shots. Him. There's quite a few shots of him and. Looking from one building through the window, which is a cool shot with the with the blue and the white and the red of across the street from yeah. Lena and the 
two other ladies' place, you know. Which was a nice scene, too, when uh, this lady brings a guy home to the place, and then Lena and the other girl come out of the shower naked. And we're like, holy shit, all right, you know. Yeah. The guy's in the right place at the right time, you know. Yeah. He has a hot bartender lady that he brings oh, home. She's beautiful. Yeah, and you have Lena naked coming out of the shower all clean, you know, and the other blonde lady that's sitting there next to her, you know, who looks good in some parts and looks uh, in other parts, which is funny. She definitely showed, she definitely was very versatile with her look, you know. Yeah. And then, of course, Monica Swim's really cool in this as well. Oh, yeah. She's wearing a cool, like, uh, harness outfit that she wears in the orgy and then wears in the scene with the old guy where she's a dominatrix and she puts him down. Calls him a swine and a uh, yeah. shit eater and a fucking couple of things. Yeah. Fucking you homosexual. Old, yeah, homosexual. You you uh, muncher. Calls him a muncher. Calls him fucking all the shit. He's, I hate you. Yeah, and he's all quivering and stuff. And, <laughs> yeah. Fucking, he's all getting her nude and she's fucking making fun of him the whole time. Yeah. yeah. There's lots of different S&M stuff in here, which is funny. And then in the movie, they talk about that where... The magazine they mentioned is about S&M articles or something. Yeah. It's kind of like with Franco and this. You have the chaining up, the women, uh, the whipping, that type of S&M. You have the dominatrix character. You have show different kind of kinks and that. So uh, even though he tries to say this and that, it does play to those certain aspects and people. Oh, huge. And, and they and they showcase that with certain images that they chose to use for advertising and that and stuff. Yeah. But, but no, but it's funny. Like, we're going back to the beginning. It's funny. Like, uh, this film cannot be made today because... I think if you had a director that had his stepdaughter, you know, in a role where she's naked and he's doing stuff to her or whatever to some extent, that would not fly today. They would compare it to Woody Allen. They would compare it to um, um, Aji Argento. Or they, I mean, he would totally be like a total, you know, total like fucking media thing or whatever. Oh, for, for better or for worse. But that, I know it would totally be a thing and, and it would just not even be made today unless it was made independently with his own money nobody else's because nobody would touch this in this day and yeah. age which is really funny watching and there it was like made and it was no big deal and it wasn't even brought up in the advertising or in the time frame of oh yeah by the way do 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 it's just like oh this person that person boom 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 they, they probably didn't know that was his stepdaughter and such but or they didn't give two shits or it was such below the radar but yeah it's just so fascinating looking at through 2021 eyes you know watching something like this yeah, there's yeah there's uh, another thing that was kind of yeah it well uh, I guess kind of thinking about it though like I mean if you're acting it's acting right you right, know right what I mean and it's, uh, he's, right. I mean because you do those things with your part. friends yeah. and the other people hey, I know you blah 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 and I'm going to see you naked and pretend like I'm going to kill you and right that's just that's yeah. part of acting correct yeah so I, but even just the kind of the either if you're moral or immoral or whatever just the aspect of as a little girl that you you know raised, and she, she's not technically your daughter; she's still your daughter. And yeah, you're pretending yeah. like you're naked with her, and you want to kind of bring her home. And she's a prostitute, and you want to like kind of save her soul and kill her and fuck her a little bit. And it's, oh, it's just weird, man. <laughs> just like just don't be so cheap and hire somebody else and tell her, well, hey, you know, I am your father, and you know, I know you want to be an actress, but do it with another director and yeah even though you could trust me and stuff just I don't know it's just weird man I don't know like I was saying earlier man his wife actually probably preferred it because like she probably had less to fear yeah her stepdaughter than she did any other actress that he might have in that position <laughs> yeah because at this time him and Lena had not yet been clicking yet and uh, you know you, you hadn't seen any signs of him and with this he has a little bit of contact with her fills her boobs and stuff a little bit and kisses her and stuff but mostly slaps her and and almost treats her like she's his daughter or something. So he's, he's definitely on his best behavior with her in this film. But 
you definitely start seeing the ties shift very soon. So <laughs> with everything, but yeah, it's kind of interesting to see all this in retrospect yeah. and know what happens and all that good stuff. So, but yeah, unfortunately, um, this is a film, of course, for Franco Completus and it's widely available. It's, uh, on uh, redemption blu-ray and you can get pretty easy. It's pretty cheap and stuff. Um, I don't recommend it. Um, of course, if you're a Franco fan, buy it as cheap. It's only like 10, 12 bucks, 15 bucks, whatever. But yeah, it's, there's a lot better films to spend your money on. But, uh, yeah. So I don't know. This is one of the rare films that I do not recommend. So, but (laughs) of course do what you want and watch anyway. But yeah, Yeah. it's, it's, it's not one of his better films. There's many, many films better than this. Watch it and see if you feel like we feel. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, you can say, Oh, you can watch for naked Lena. Well, you can watch a lot of other movies for, yeah, there's a lot of naked Lena. movies. You can watch for this or that. So yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not big into like torturing people in films and, like uh, even though I've used it in certain films with crime and stuff, but just the the, for the sake of doing it, and especially with Lena, Lena's just I don't know. Like I was saying before, I like to see Lena enjoyed and not uh, hurt, you know. So yeah, it was just very formulaic, you know. It's like people would have sex and he would appear and just be like, yeah, it was just kind of chloroform rag and yeah, you I'm gonna kill you and absolve you of your sin, and then he stabs them and they die immediately. Plus, I think they kill a real dove too, which I'm not really big for seeing that shit. So you know, they cut yeah. off his head and you see like it's like I think that might be a real, but you know, they don't show yeah. the head getting cut off, but you see the aftermath and. It's like another Mondo Kane, like, uh, animal type snuff thing. So, but that was kind of popular at the time too. You see that every once in a while, which is totally not necessary, but it could have been a prop too. Who knows? But, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's some cool locations in this. I did like the bar where they do the strip shows. That bar was used in a few other films. I'd recognized it. Uh, and, um, uh, like I said, pretty much, even if his films aren't the best, he always has cool locations. Uh, like Eric was talking about the Paris in the 70s. You see some cool buildings, a lot of exteriors of that. Uh, you see some really cool interiors of some nice, uh, not really, you see some rooms that are kind of gaudy and stuff, but uh, there's this, actually, we f- finish with this, uh, the place where Lena lives, they have a really cool place. They have like this velvet, fucking purple velvet walls and yeah. uh, uh, bizarre other shit in the room that I was noticing that their their room's very, very funky. Yeah. But uh, yeah. The walls like match the bed. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up or nah, that we didn't? No, nah, I mean, like, just, yeah. There's Oh, yeah, fear or desire. That's right. Fear. Which yeah. one do you think it is, fear or is it desire in this film? Uh, I think, for me, it was more uh, fear, like, because he was, like, fearful for the devil, and he was fearful of people basically being possessed, so he had to kill them yeah. to release some of their possession. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, yeah, because at first I was like, wasn't sure, but I think, I think it is fear because he lived yeah. in fear and, and he thought that was going on and he had to, you know, and the end, any desire would be on their end would be, they just desire f- sexual freedom and the thing to be free. And of course he fears their, they desire freedom. copulation. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey man, Churchillina is no, uh, that's, 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 that's part of the text, you know. The Lena Romay School of Oral Copulation. Gosh. <laughs> Join today. I gotta go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. That's a Holy Spirit. So. All right. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap it up. So, adios. Uh, beautiful nights. Beautiful nights.